So this morning we get into um, a letter, an epistle that was written by James. Uh, the book of James is probably the single most requested book uh, for me to preach through since I've been here. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to finally getting to it. Um, James is also probably one of, if not my favorite book of the New Testament. Um, so I'm looking forward to having a chance to preach through it and really dig into it again. I haven't had a chance to really get into depth in James in a while. So it's, um, it's good to be able to do that again. Um, so keeping with our theme of kind of short series this week, uh, James is going to be 10 weeks long. We're starting today. We're going to wrap up April 5th. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that. James is a really, really highly practical book. Uh, from a preaching standpoint, for me, it's actually a little bit intimidating because uh, it's so practical. Uh, there's not a lot of application necessary on my end of it. James is written pretty much from a do this, don't do this, uh, and then here's why uh, kind of perspective. So I have a feeling that James and I, when we meet one day in the kingdom, uh, we'll get along pretty well. Uh, it's one of those, he has one of those styles that seems to speak to me pretty well, so uh, I think we'll be friends. Um, anyway, uh, let, me, let me pray, uh, and we'll get right into this great book. Father God, thank you so much for gathering us here together this morning. I pray that you would be with those of us who are here, and also with those of us who can't make it because they are um, sick, or watching children who are sick, or uh, any reasons that they have uh, for being unable to be with us this morning. Uh, I thank you for your word that is instruction to us. I thank you for uh, this letter that we're about to read that is instruction to us. I pray that it would be fruitful and profitable for us um, in our lives individually, in our lives as a church, as we seek to live out the Great Commission in this town that we love so much. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So James chapter 1, going to verse 18. James, servant of God... And of the Lord Jesus Christ to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits to his creatures. Okay, so before we get into verse 2, which is kind of where the book really starts, 
into the real meat of what we're talking about. I want to just very quickly, and this is kind of a habit of mine, I want to very quickly just give you a bit of a brief overview of the book of James as a whole. Um, James is what's known as a general epistle, um, also known as a Catholic with a, with a small C, not a big C, a small C, Catholic means united uh, uh, epistle, meaning it's not geared to a specific topic, right? I mean, uh, books like First and Second Timothy and Titus, um, those are known as pastoral epistles. So they kind of deal with pastoral issues, uh, things like who's called to be a pastor, what an elder is, uh, that kind of questions. Uh, other books like Philippians and Ephesians, written by letters to churches dealing with issues within those churches and also of benefit to the global church today. Some of them are also known as prison epistles, like Philippians is kind of a, it's a, it's a, it's a regular church epistle and also a prison epistle because Paul wrote it from prison, uh, along with First and Second Peter, First, uh, Second, Third John, and also Jude. Um, and James, these are what's known as the general epistles. They're generally for everyone. Uh, didn't have a specific church or a specific audience or a specific context in mind um, when they were written, which makes, it, makes them generally easier to interpret as a rule. Author of James is James. Uh, sometimes book titles like this can, can trip you up. For example, First, Second Timothy, not written by Timothy, written to Timothy by Paul. Uh, and uh, uh, Philemon is the other one that really throws you off. Not written by Timothy, or sorry, not written by Philemon, not written to Philemon, written about Philemon. Um, so sometimes titles of books can trip you up. But James, written by James, uh, he identifies himself in verse 1. Uh, the only question is which James <laughs> wrote the book. There's anywhere between four and six men named James in the New Testament. Um, but only of those six, only two of them have ever really been seriously considered to be the author of the book. Uh, the first is James, the son of Zebedee, uh, one of Jesus' inner circle, right? Uh, uh, Peter, James, and John, uh, that guy. He's considered by some to have possibly been the author of the book, but James was martyred very early in the life of the church, right around uh, 43, 44 A.D., um, so about 10 years or so after the, the death and resurrection of Christ. So most people think that he died too early to have written the book of James, uh, which leaves us with the other one, James, the brother of Jesus. So we know this. Mary and Joseph had um, children after they had Jesus. Jesus, of course, would have been the oldest, born of a virgin. Uh, but after that, Mary and Joseph had a normal human marriage, which resulted in normal human children, uh, James being one of them. Uh, and although James and his siblings did not immediately see Jesus for who he was, uh, later on after the resurrection, we see that in church history, most, if not all of them, we don't have accounts of all of them, uh, did come to worship Jesus as Lord. James being kind of the, the most famous or the foremost among them. Uh, James being recognized as kind of the first bishop of Jerusalem. I know Baptists don't like that word, but that's the word that's used in the Bible. Uh, so the first bishop of Jerusalem. He presided over the Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15. Uh, we see James there. Um, his brother, Jesus' brother James, martyred as well, but not until the mid-60s AD. Um, and so that's why we think the book of James is actually uh, the first book of the New Testament that was written. Uh, probably the first one written, written before the first gospel. Mark was probably written in about 50, even like the, like the early to mid-50s, we think, is when the Gospel of Mark was written. James was written probably the late 40s, so 47, 48, 49, around there, um, 10 or so years after the death of Jesus. So we think this was the first book of the New Testament written. Uh, James, son of Zebedee, was martyred, as we know, um, early on. 
So too early to kind of have written the book. So we're pretty certain that this is James, the son, or the brother of Jesus who wrote this. Um, the audience it's written to is Jewish. Remember I said this is a general epistle written to everyone. The audience here, it, he says, you know, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. So that's kind of the 12 tribes that are within the Greek world as well, all the way to Rome. Um, that's kind of another reason that we think that James was written earlier. Right, because he he identifies his audience as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. You've got to think that being first century Jews who believed Jesus to be the Messiah, they didn't start calling themselves Christians right away. It's not until later on in the the book of Acts that we even see the word Christian, meaning little Christ. Um, So we didn't kind of have that separate religion the way that we do now, Christianity and Judaism. It wasn't really separate in the first century. Uh, it was kind of like they were a sect of Ju- Judaism that believed that Christ was the Messiah. Um, so if you'd asked them, they would have told you that they were Jewish, right? That's what they, you know, what religion are you? I'm, I'm a Jew, uh, even though they were what we would call Christians. Um, so some of those issues continued and it got worse to the point where Paul kind of had to write a letter to the church in Galatia, right? Talking about like Jews being within the faith and then circumcision being a part. Like, do we need to be circumcised now? So Kind of that's where we started to see that split, that delineation between Christianity and Judaism. It started kind of with that issue and, and with the letter to uh, the church in Galatia. Uh, but that's a whole other, it's a whole other issue, a whole other Sunday, a whole other letter. So there we go. Um, so James wrote the letter had to a Jewish audience. wasn't writing to Gentiles. It was writing to Jewish people uh, who believed, rightly so, that Jesus was the promised Messiah. Um, you see a bit of that structure in his writing going forward. I might, I might refer to it a bit here and there. That you know, he, he, write, he uses this expression because he's writing to a Jewish audience. Um, so uh, I'll, I'll use that to explain some kind of terms of phrase that James uses. So that's just kind of good to have in the back of your mind as we go forward. So that's just a really quick overview of James, uh, the author, James the book. Um, so from there on, I mean, from verse 2 on, James doesn't mess around, so we'll just... Not mess around either. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. So just for a minute. Really, really quickly. Whenever you see that word in the epistles, particularly ladies, whenever you see the word brothers, right? When the author is addressing you and he says, count it all joy, my brothers. um, You're not being ignored. Okay? Um, James and the other authors of scripture who used that expression, my brothers, beloved brothers, is one, of, one that Peter used a lot. Um, they're referring to the body of Christ inclusively, and they're using the expression brothers inclusively. Okay? Here's something you, you got to know about Greek. Greek's a gendered language. Okay? It's not like English. Like in, in English, um, a chair is a chair. It's not masculine. It's not feminine. It's just, it's just a chair. It's, it's, it's neuter. Uh, in Greek... Um, Chair is, I believe, a feminine noun, just like in French, right? In chaise, it's a, it's a feminine word. Um, so in Greek, they have kind of gendered nouns as well. That's kind of the way the language is structured. So when you use an expression like brothers, um, some of the more modern translations will actually include brothers and sisters. It's not, it's not wrong to do that. I just, I'm not comfortable with it because the word's not in the Greek. So we, 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 we want to stay as close to the original as we can. Uh, but it's not wrong to kind of read it that way when you're reading it. Like if you're a woman and you're reading a verse and it says, you know, count it all joy, brothers, in your head you can say and sisters. Like it's, it's being inclusive. It's kind of like, um, it's kind of like if, if I were to address all of you and say, hi guys, right? You ladies wouldn't feel left out, I hope, by that. 
So that's kind of, it's, it's not an inappropriate way to do that. Uh, you can read it as brothers and sisters. She's talking about the assembled, uh, uh, the, the assembled church, the, the assembled body of, of Christ. Um, so there we go. So uh, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. So right away, verse 2, the first thing that James says of substance, he slaps us with this brutal reality. Now, by the way, James 1-2, probably my favorite verse of the Bible. Definitely my favorite verse in the New Testament. Definitely top five verses in all of Scripture. Now, what you notice is what James says here. He says, when you meet trials. doesn't say if. It doesn't say if you meet suffering. It doesn't say if you meet trials. It says when. When you meet trials. When you go through sufferings. Now, trial and suffering is not something that's possible for a Christian. It's something that's expected for a Christian. We will suffer and face trial. Every single New Testament book talks about our suffering as Christians. With one exception. First Timothy. Although Second Timothy really makes up for it. We'll, we'll, we'll see that. So I'll give you just a couple of examples of these. You know, every single book of the Bible or book of the New Testament talks about. It. I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, we don't have time to go through all of them. Um, there's so many. But let's just give you a couple. Romans chapter five. We rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. Sounds an awful lot like James, doesn't it? And Paul wrote this. And Paul and James are often said to be at odds with each other, and they agree more than people think. Um, so that's Romans 5. Romans 8, verse 18, a little further along. For, this is Paul, uh, Paul talking. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Luke 14, verse 27, Jesus says this. Whoever does not bear his own cross, right, his own sufferings, and come after me cannot be my disciple. Philippians 1.29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I love that one. Last one, I'll do this. Uh, remember I said 1 Timothy doesn't, have, doesn't talk about suffering in this context? 2 Timothy does. Um, So this is the one that that makes up for it. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. I'll say that again. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. I meant that when I said that 2 Timothy makes up for 1 Timothy. And on and on and on it goes in the New Testament. You'll just see that time and time again, all over in every single book. You will suffer, you will suffer, you will suffer. Rejoice in your suffering, you will suffer. Suffering is discipline, suffering is a good thing. It's for your benefit, it's for God's glory, it's there to test you, and you will suffer and rejoice in that. And here James says, consider it joy, all joy, pure joy, some translations say. When you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Some of your translations might say perseverance. So the testing of your faith. Those trials we go through produce something in us. They produce perseverance. They produce steadfastness. Verse 4. And let steadfastness have its full effect. 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is talking about perfection, not about um, sinlessness, right? But about being complete, about having a perfect character. He's talking about being mature in Christ as a Christian. He's talking about your sanctification, being sanctified. You ever met one of those, one of those old saints that just drive you nuts? Right, like one of those, one of those old, older men and women who've been a believer for years and years and years, um, been believers for a long time, been through it all, they've seen it all, they've lived through trial, they've lived through temptation, they've lived through su- real suffering, not what we call suffering now, real suffering, and they have this one thing in common. They all have joy. Just joy. They've lived through it all, and you see the perseverance that God has given them through it. You, you, you can't get them down. You, you just can't. We're losing many of these people now because they're getting older and older and, and time goes on and waits for no one. But people who lived through the Great Depression, people who lived through the Second World War and lost relatives, husbands, fathers, brothers, and sisters in that war. Um, remember I, I was talking about how um, in the first century... Jewish people were seen as, as, as like Christians who were Jewish were seen as kind of a different sect. Um, that sort of continues today, and it continues into um, uh, during the Holocaust. Jewish people were victims of the Holocaust, but many of those Jewish people were Christians, were believing Christians. A lot of them were pastors in their churches, because in terms of the Holocaust, your Jewishness was seen as your ethnicity. So you can, there's a lot of Christians who are numbered among those six million who died in in Auschwitz, Birkenau, and and Dachau. Just many, many of our brothers and sisters who died there as well, who were ethnically Jewish, but believed Christ was the Messiah. So those who survived that, that generation of people, they understand what suffering is. They understand what trial is. They've lived through it, and some of them, that, that you meet have lived through it and they just, they've grown in perseverance and they've, they've grown in steadfastness and, and anything that happens to them now just doesn't phase them. And it drives, it drives you nuts because that's not, that's not what you are. That's not what I am sometimes. The Lord will do that. They'll, 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 he'll give you perseverance. They've, they've seen it all. They've seen God do it all and get them through it all and walk with them through suffering and pain and trial. And they know he's going to be there over and over. We see this in scripture as well. The thrust of the Christian life is not get saved, sit back and wait for the return of Jesus. That's not not the thrust of the Christian life. The thrust of the Christian life is that God wants you to grow. Jesus said he came that you would have life and have it abundantly, have it to the full. He's not just talking about the next life. He's talking about this life as well. He wants you to have this life to the full abundantly as well. So in this life, your faith will be tested. Not because God is some cosmic scientist who loves to watch you run through a maze with no exit. You know that God doesn't just sit back and laugh at our foibles, right? Ultimately, God is growing us. He's leading us to become more and more like him in this life so that we can, in turn, lead others to become more like Christ. God wants us to grow, and he's willing to help us do it. 
Here's how. Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. And it will be given to him. The rest of this section this morning is really about some of the tools that God gives us to endure trial. Here it's wisdom. The big one that James hits is wisdom. James tells us that the testing of our faith produces or results in steadfastness, results in perseverance. That doesn't just magically happen. God doesn't just out of nowhere promise to help us avoid trial or walk us around it without having to endure it and learn perseverance by it. What he does promise is to give us the tools when we ask to endure those things. And the one that James mentions here is wisdom. Now wisdom is different than intelligence. Wisdom is different than just simply being smart or having a lot of knowledge. One of the better definitions I've heard of wisdom is this. Wisdom is the application of intelligence. It's not simply knowing what to do. It's knowing how and when to do it. That's the gift that God offers to those of us who ask so that we can endure trial. James says we must ask with faith, though. In fact, James says that if we don't ask with faith, that we are like a wave on the sea, tossed by the wind. Right? I love these pictures that James uses. We're like this. Like just a wave on the sea, we're just being tossed around, but we're all over the place. This is nothing more than practical. Think about it this way. If you don't have faith in the wisdom that God gives you, right? You pray for faith, you pray for wisdom, you don't have faith in the wisdom that God gives you. How can you ever act in confidence on that faith? Right? Like if you don't have faith in the wisdom you get from God, then you'll hem and you'll haw and you'll change your mind a dozen times and you're, you're like this. Right? You're all over the place. You won't have confidence in your decisions because you don't have faith in the wisdom God gives you. So ask with faith. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So what's going on here? Seems a little out of place, right? James is talking about trial and perseverance and steadfastness and pray for wisdom. And then all of a sudden he's, he's, he's onto this, this lowly brother and this rich man and the flower and the scorching heat and it burns and withers away. And how does that fit? James is giving us an example of wisdom. How wisdom plays itself out. James talks about this lowly brother... Right? This, this brother of humble circumstances. He's talking about a Christian. Because right? he's using the term brother. A believer who doesn't have a lot of material possession. That's the lowly circumstances bit. James contrasts this lowly brother with this rich man. More than likely not a believer because he's not saying rich brother. It's a rich man. Then what he does is he flips the expectation. Okay? He says the lowly poor brother will boast in his exaltation. Or take pride in his high position, this lowly brother. And the rich man ought to boast in his low position. Or take pride in his low position. So he flips the expectation from what we expect, right? Here's why. This is wisdom. Because you're going to die. Right? 100% of people 
die. Unless you're alive when Jesus comes back. But not including them, 100% of people die. If you're poor, you boast in your high position because you're going to be exalted when you die. If you're rich, you boast in your low position because your wealth on this earth is fading and tenuous. It'll go away. It won't follow you in death. The Egyptians believed when they were mummified, they would take all their wealth with them. So they put it all in the same room as their sarcophagus. And they believed that if you're buried in, if you're mummified in this room with all your wealth, your wealth comes with you. That's just not the case. It's fading. It's tenuous. You can't take it with you when you die. There are no pockets in your burial shroud. Wisdom says, whether you're rich or poor, you glorify God and you boast in the gospel. That's the example of wisdom James uses here. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial with wisdom, for when he has stood the test by using wisdom, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. James is saying, if you accept the wisdom of God with faith, with confidence, you will be able to navigate these trials and you will be blessed in this life whether you go through trial or not, because you will receive the crown of life at the end. So even though God gives us all the tools to live life abundantly now, he's not forgetting and not letting us forget that this life is semi-permanent. It ends. And then there's another life where perseverance and trial get us through. Where we get the crown of life at the end. Because God, God doesn't want to tempt you. He, he doesn't tempt you. That's what he says in verses 14 and 15. Don't say you're being tempted by God because you're not. Being tempted by God. What's happening is that you're going through your life in the flesh and your sinful nature. And what's tempting you to get away from the wisdom God gives you is your own desire. And your own wants. And your own flesh. James is saying, don't deceive yourself and think that God is testing you. God's not testing you. He's giving you every, like, all the tools he can to help you get out of that temptation. God doesn't test you. That would be boring for him. Like God is omniscient. Why would he bother testing you if he knows what the answer is going to be? It's like watching. It's like like that mouse in the maze. It's like watching a mouse run around a maze with no exit and no cheese. There's there's no point to it. Nothing will come of it. It's it's boring. So God's not testing you. He doesn't do that. Finally, verse sixteen. We'll end here. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change, of his own will will be brought forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So James is kind of reinforcing the fact that God is not the one who tempts us. Our own flesh, our own desires are the thing that tempts us. God gives us, the only thing that God gives us is gifts. That's easy to say. It's harder to actually believe. So I'm, I'm asking you this morning to believe that. Right? When God puts you in a struggle, he's giving you a gift. When God puts you in a, in a situation where you have to struggle, where you're being, your faith is being tested in the situation, it's, it's a gift. You've got to believe it's a gift. 
It's for your own good. It's for your own sanctification. It's for your own growth. But only if you see it that way. Only if you see it as a gift that it is. As the opportunity it is to press closer to God. To press into God. To get more wisdom from Him. To learn more about Him from Scripture. To press on through the situation. To learn from it what God wants you to learn. And it might take you a long time to even learn the subject. Not, not necessarily even the lesson, but just to learn, okay, God, what are you teaching me here? What's this all about? It might take you a while to get to that point before you can start learning the actual lesson. That can take a long time. But it's for your good. God wants you to learn from it so you can become the person God wants you to be. Verse 18 says, God brought us forth by the word of truth. You may have heard me talk about this idea before. In Greek, there's two words translated as word in English, right? Rhema and logos. Okay? Uh, Rhema is what I'm doing now. Spoken word, written word, it's it's language. Uh, And logos is kind of more of a philosophical construct. In scripture, in the New Testament, it's almost always talking about Jesus. So logos is really a synonym for Jesus. So God brings us forth by, this is Logos, by the way, God brings us forth of his own will by Jesus, by the word, by the gospel, so that we can be a first fruit of his creatures. Now that idea of first fruit, that's a, that's a Hebrew idea. Remember Jesus or James is writing to a predominantly Jewish Hebrew audience. So the idea of first fruits means that we are, through Christ, as Christians, set apart from the world to be God's people, much like Israel was. And that's all part of the gifts that God gives us. So where does that leave us? What's the purpose in all of this for us today? Jesus says in John 10, I've talked about it a few times this morning, um, that he has come that we may have life to the fullest extent, life life abundantly. And when he said that, he wasn't talking about simply the life to come, he was talking about this life as well wasn't just talking about spending eternity with him. Although that's definitely something to look forward to. He's talking about the life we have here, now. Jesus wants us to live this life to the fullest extent possible on this earth while we breathe this air. And to do that, we can't continue to be the same people we have always been. Even secular philosophers get this. Even atheists get this. Right? They know that to live life is to grow and change and expand your knowledge about the world around you and expand your experience uh, with the world around you. Life is about more than simple monotony. Wake up, get dressed, go to work, eat lunch, back to work, come home, eat dinner, go to bed, wake up, get dressed, go to work, eat lunch, come back, uh, go home, eat dinner, go to bed, repeat until you die. Life is about more than that. Even the atheists know this. We have a bigger calling than that. We're called to herald, to trumpet, to display the kingdom of God on the earth. We're called to reveal the truth that the world is not as it should be, that it's broken, that it can be made new again, that it will be made new again. And the thing that caused the brokenness of the world, sin, that it has been paid for, and more than that, it's been paid for by Christ. And that one day the world will be renewed again through him and we will live on it again with him. And the way that we do that, James begins his letter 
by saying, when we, when we encounter trials, when, we, when, when our faith is tested, we use wisdom to get through it with God so that when other people look at us from the outside, from outside the church, they don't just see someone who's dealing with adversity well. Oh, they're really well balanced. They've got a really good outlook on life. They're, they're dealing with that well. That's not what we want them to see. We, we want them to see someone who's leaning on something else. Leaning on something greater than them. Leaning on the wisdom and provision of God and of Christ. Everything is about mission. Everything is about the Great Commission. Everything is evangelism. Everything in your life is meant for the expansion of the kingdom of God. You are always worshiping. Whether you're in this room or not, you're always worshiping. The only, direction is what direct, the only question is what direction is that worship in. You are always witnessing. The only question is are you being a good witness or a bad witness in any given situation? Everything is kingdom. Everything is, is gospel. Everything is evangelism. Your whole life is evangelism, one way or the other. What are you evangelizing? The rest of the letter of James goes into a lot more detail about the practicalities of how to live a Christian life, how to live a mature Christian life in a world that is far from Christian. But it all starts with finding joy in trial. It all starts with seeking wisdom in temptation and in trial and in suffering because everyone faces suffering. Everyone, Christian or not, everyone faces suffering. How we deal with it as believers ought to point upward, ought to point to the God who gives us the tools to get through it when we trust in him and lean on him. So we ought to show the world that the wisdom we get, we get from he who is greater than us. Let's pray.